Hello, and welcome to the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Liefers, and it's my pleasure today to be talking to Nancy Hansen, Director of the Interdisciplinary Master's Program in Disability Studies at the University of Manitoba. Nancy recently co-edited the Routledge History of Disability with her colleagues Roy Haynes and Ivan Brown, and she's been very busy. She also co-edited the new collection Untold Stories, a Canadian disability history reader with Roy Haynes and Diane Dreger. It was published in 2018 by Canadian Scholars Press. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, you've done a lot of work in disability studies and disability activism over the course of your career. But since, you know, this is the Disability History Podcast, I'll start by asking, how did you get interested in disability history? Actually, that's a really good question, because um, my original studies were in um, uh, disability geography about space and place and time. But my first, when I was first uh, hired at the University of Manitoba, I was uh, successful um, in my application to an Einstein Fellowship with 13 other uh, disabled academics from uh, around the world. And we went to uh, do a disability uh, studies uh, look at um, uh, the T4 elimination sites for people with uh, disabilities that took place during the Nazi period in Germany and in other parts of Europe. Wow. And I got to thinking when I came back, what what if um, uh, no, um, any space is too much space, like uh, disabled people taking up any space is too much space. And then I got to thinking, how can we regularize um, disability so that uh, disabled, disabled people won't be seen as um, so much the other. And I thought, well, a good place to start would be in spaces and places of culture, like museums and art galleries, because um, that's where the cultural elements that um, society sort of um, aspires to or looks at or thinks is valuable, that's where they're found. So I got to thinking, okay, there's got, disability's always been present. So if we can fit it into places of culture and sort of uncover um, disability history or look at existing history through a disability lens, what can we uncover? And how can we make space for uh, disabled people in uh, places of culture? Hmm. In this collection, Untold Stories, your own contribution to this book talks about how disability history is publicly curated and memorialized. And you write, quote, people with disabilities are engaged in a cultural reclamation project. So making up for a long history of segregation, exclusion. Are they gaining ground in this project? How is I, it going so far? Well, I would say it, it's, it's, it's moving. The fact that there has been... Uh, recent um, publications around disability history um, points to that, like uh, Dustin Geiler's um, book called Working Towards Equity, the Untold Stories book, the Rutledge book, and I believe Oxford's just come out with a disability history book as well. So it's, it's, gaining ground as far as um, 
the uh, you know publications are concerned slowly. I would say where there needs to be more work done is putting uh, like looking at existing museum collections and um, seeing what elements of uh, disability can be put in there. And a lot of famous people, for example, have uh, disability as part of their life history, but that that part of their history is often subject to, if you will, um, cultural erasure. It's, it's as if uh, any recognition of a disability sort of detracts from the importance of what they've done in a historical context, where I think that that adds even more uh, an element of interest and creativity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do, do you think that museums are just inherently cautious institutions and talking about disability almost um, requires them to take a political stance it's going to require that they start talking about disability rights is and that's seen as radical is that is that part of the problem here the, the uh, I, I think i think there any um portion of the population and um that's uh, been uh, tagged as as marginal or um like anything around racialized issues or gender issues or um, sexuality issues or indigenous issues and uh, uh, disability and we're 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 never uh, just one thing but anything that's that has kind of an uncomfortable history or past attached to it there's sort of a uh, discomfort level as to um, how do we approach this but I think as um, disabled people become more involved with uh, allies and disabled people themselves talking about their own history and if we can regularize what's going on um, and sort of see the necessity of unpacking things and not necessarily to make it more political or activist in nature but just to get a more complete picture of what history really is how we can see the uh, richness and depth of, of the society in which we live uh, and see it as a natural part of um, building a better historical picture, hmm. um, people will become less um, cautious for putting disability issues in the collection because they're already there. Yeah. It's just that they haven't been unpacked yet. Mm. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I really appreciate that. Why did you decide that the time was right for this Canadian collection, Untold Stories? What what motivated you to do this? Well, um, uh, we've been, um, Roy and Diane and I had been collecting, um, uh, we wanted to do this for a long time, Mm. and we were just looking for a a publisher that was open to the idea, and Canadian Scholars Press seemed to be really, really um, keen on the idea because they've done publishing around disability issues before and disability studies. So it was a natural place to go. And um, as disability studies grows as a a discipline, it's uh, um, other more, shall we say, established disciplines such as history have been looking at elements of disability history as well. So um, everything came together, if you will, it was perfect timing and being in Manitoba as well there is um, 
a lot of disability history here that may have started here, but it's grown on a national level. So there's sort of a, a lot of connections and intersections here as, as far as history is concerned. So everything um, just came together at the right time. Awesome. And uh, um, society is becoming more open to disability issues, and this is just part of it. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I want to jump on that Manitoba thing quickly as a little digression, but I, I think it's an interesting question. You're absolutely right. I mean, Manitoba really has been kind of a heartland for disability activism in Canada. You know, it's also mm -hmm. where you happen to live and work. Why Manitoba? Is there something in the water there that's really motivated a lot of disability activism? Well, um, the Mennonite Central, this is... This is what I've been given to understand. The Mennonite Central Committee did a lot of social justice issues um, around the world. And some of the early members of the disability rights community in, in Canada were Mennonite. Mm -hmm. And they just saw that social justice element as a natural part of what should be, you know... Um, part of disability uh, rights gathering, if you will, and moving away from charity to social justice, just as the Mennonite community had with other um, issues of social justice in the past. Disability was just another one of those. Um, so the early membership of the disability rights um, community is also had also had membership in the um, Mennonite um, social justice element oh, yeah. projects. That makes a lot of sense. So this gets at one of the interesting issues that I think your book raises for people and, and um, just purely by being this Canadian disability history reader, it asks us to interrogate what is distinctive about Canada's disability history. You've raised one really important um, element here with the the history of the Mennonite community, particularly in Manitoba. Are there other things that are distinctive about disability history in Canada? Uh, I would say that one particular um, element of interest is the development of, of the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms itself, that um, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was the first piece of legislation to, uh, constitutional legislation to include disability as a protected, um, protected, uh, element. Mm -hmm. And so that was unique in and of itself. Um, there, uh, there's the assumption a lot of times that, um, the American, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act was the first real, um, piece of, of sort of constitution-like legislation to incorporate disability, but yeah, in my view, I think, was the charter. And also, there's been a sort of a, a, a more of a willingness, at least in some sectors of Canadian society, to sort of um, see this um, multiculturalism as positive, uh, and diversity as positive, and disability being part of that diversity it's just another element of the depth and texture that's Canadian society. And there's a lot of work to do yet, but um, we are getting there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and for 
people who aren't familiar, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is a part of the Canadian Constitution, and it uh, was passed into law in 1982. So that, yeah, definitely precedes the Americans with Disabilities Act, absolutely. Your edited collection also includes contributions that talk about institutions like the Missioner Centre in Red Deer, um, fights for access to public transit in Montreal and Manitoba. There's the habeas corpus case of Justin Clark, and that actually happened in 1981 before the Charter of Rights and Freedoms enshrined disability rights in the Canadian Constitution. That case is about, of course, a, a young um, adult man in Ontario who had to go to court to get the right to choose where he could live, right? So in, in your view, what are some of the landmark moments or issues or flashpoints for disability history that we should be talking about? I think um, the the case for um, transportation with the, with the via rail case was an important one too. Um, uh, getting, getting the process of getting uh, disability enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was a process in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And preceding that, the obstacles report for the, from the International Year of uh, Disabled Persons was the first time that um, Canadian legislators really got uh, got a flavor for the level of deprivation experienced by um, people with disabilities in this country caused by uh, lack of access to uh, education, lack of access to employment, lack of access to uh, transportation and housing, lack of access, period. And when one considers that... Um, um, disabled people of whatever type of disability you want to talk about constitute um, at least uh, 15% of the population at any one time. That's a, a large segment of the population not to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So um, the obstacles report provided this sort of the uh, the foundation for what was to come after because nobody really understood what was happening with um, disabled people in this country. And there was a lot of isolation. And that was before um, social media was available to a lot of people. So um, people weren't really aware of, uh, disabled people really weren't aware of other disabled people's situations because there was a level of isolation present too. Mm. So it could act almost like as a gathering point for people with disabilities themselves in Canada. That's really interesting. Would you mind, if you happen to be comfortable talking about, would you mind just going over the Via Rail case that you mentioned for people who are familiar with it? I'm not an expert on it, but... um there uh the um the principal drivers in it were, were um the um council of canadians with disabilities and uh it was uh via rail had purchased some uh train cars that were not accessible to uh wheelchair users and um the uh the um uh Council of Canadians with Disabilities um, said that this was inappropriate because uh, we um, disabled people needed accessible transportation across the country, and and um, uh, VRL was trying to make the case that this was not financially feasible for them to do so, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court 
I'm sh- I'm sorry, I don't have the details right to hand, but it was groundbreaking, and um, it really put the Council of Canadians with Disabilities on the map as far as disability rights is concerned mm-hmm. in this country. Well, that's excellent. It's the kind of thing that I, I agree we as Canadians should be talking about more, you know, um, <laughs> absolutely so important. So actually, this gets a, a question that I wanted to ask you about more. I mean, we, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about this cultural reclamation project and the need to put disability front and center in museums and include it in stories that we might not conventionally think of as being about disability. But, you know, as you peel back the layers, you often find that disability is a very important part of of rounding out this picture, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to ask in particular about Canada. We're both Canadian. Do you think that Canada is doing a good job of this right now? Are there any examples you can talk about? I think um, uh, the... um uh, Canada is starting to do a good job with it. I think there's a lot of work. Uh, let's put it this way. It's a work in progress. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a lot of work uh, yet to do. Um, I know that uh, Ryerson, the Out From Under uh, project, was instrumental um, in in uh, taking what was initially uh an undergraduate student project and turning it into an exhibit of dis, uh, the first disability history in Canada. And it was originally situated in a multicultural center outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then it was moved to the Royal Ontario Museum. And then it ultimately found its home uh, in the um, Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Mm-hmm. So that that was really important. Um, I, I know that there has been efforts to make um, existing exhibits more accessible um, to um, disabled users, but I think we have to get, um, for the most part, a lot of how... Um, disability at the museum or at the art gallery wherever they are is approached is yes we have an accessible toilet and our our restaurant facilities are accessible and there are there are um uh you know seats located throughout the facility whatever Uh, although i have to say that there are um uh efforts now to have touch um touch tours for exhibits for people with vision impairments. Mm -hmm. There are um, different um, uh, specialized tours for um, looking at elements of of disability in art. But those those are exceptional, I would say, rather than um, a regularized part of uh, going to the museum or looking at um, looking at what um, museum collections have or art galleries have, I, I think that we have to get beyond the um, discomfort factor around disability issues to really move that forward, and um, put just expecting disability and putting putting disability in the the part of the history curriculum wherever you find yourself um in 
in as part of the regular school system, starting yeah. from elementary through secondary to post-secondary, just expect disability and incorporate um, disability issues into um, the larger history project, if you will, and not hive it off as something special or unique. Mm-hmm. I think one should just learn to expect disability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, f- what, 15% of the Canadian population, right? How, mm-hmm. how does it make sense to hive that off? Right. <laughs> yeah. And like, if you want to go worldwide, it's over 1 billion people. There's a lot of richness of life there. You can't ignore that yeah. and understand the fullness of the human condition, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you call your book Untold Stories, right? Uh, why why is it so important for everyone to read these stories and go to these museums and learn about this in school and learn about disability history? I think I know the answer, but I want you to talk about why you're so passionate about this. Well, um, first and foremost, uh, as a disabled person, I think we need a more complete history of um, disabled people's presence in in. Uh, the historical landscape mm-hmm. and that it's always that disability has always been present uh, um, but we have to sort of uh, um, build another approach that moves beyond cultural absence to um, to beyond charity to to um, disabled people living their lives in in Canadian society and uh, moving towards human rights and activism so that we can sort of um, uh, take our place, our natural place in Canadian history and the larger history project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really love your point too. I think this is so important that we need to know the history um, to ensure that we continue to be good activists, right? Exactly. It's a part of that project, right? As you realize mm-hmm. just how much work needs to be done, you realize what past injustices need to be remedied, right? And the mm-hmm. history gives you that, it kind of lights that fire, right? Exactly. That's a piece of it, yeah. I, I want to talk a bit about academia, the public. I mean, museums, in a way, are kind of that space that bridges the gap, one possible space that bridges the gap between academia and the public. Because I I do think that there's um, quite a lot of momentum happening in terms of disability history in academia, which is really exciting. But are we, as disability historians, including the public enough in our work, either as possible audiences for our work, or you know, especially people with disabilities out there in the public as possible collaborators in our work, right? So what can scholars like me do to kind of bridge that gap? Like, do we need to be organizing different kinds of conferences? Do we need to publish in different venues? I mean, I want to know your thoughts about this. Well, I I think first and foremost, uh, we have to um, see um, disability everywhere Mm -hmm. and recognize that, history is everywhere and look for the historical content I realize you're an historian yourself but look for the historical content in everything that one does and I think in the larger context we can't understand the level of marginalization experienced by 
disabled people today until we have a, a fuller grasp of the history. And I think we have to we have to start collecting histories like oral histories, visible histories, um, because a lot of uh, disability rights-based groups or disability groups in general are so busy trying to exist day to day in in a in a uh, atmosphere of uh, cutback threats and and um, just the day to day survival of these organizations is tough and they don't have time to do um, you know the history of of how they got there and what they're doing and all that stuff. I think it's incumbent upon us as as um, disability historians and academics in general, even if even if history is not a part of your discipline per se, history is everywhere just as disability is, mm-hmm. and we have to incorporate that and find ways of putting it in to build a lar- uh, to m- make a more complete context of what's actually going on here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I really appreciate your point of recognizing that a lot of advocacy and activist groups are really, really busy. (laughs) And so being able to produce history that is useful to them, you know, and just sort of make that available out there so that they can draw on it is really could be really helpful. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. That's it's actually something I hadn't really thought that much about. And so I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention. That's great. I have just a couple final questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, One of them is about disciplines and interdisciplinarity. So you're obviously the director of an interdisciplinary master's program in disability Mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. And this wonderful collection, Untold Stories, includes contributions from people from all over the disciplinary spectrum. I mean, you've got sociologists, you've got activists, you've got geographers, you've got museologists, you've got a, a you know, fair share of historians in there, and, and there's more, like the list goes on. So can you tell me a little bit about the advantages of taking that kind of interdisciplinary approach? It's a, you get a fresh perspective on everything, right? Everybody brings something to the table and they all perceive it differently. So... And it just you get you get more than if you would say looking taking a traditional approach to something whatever that means these days. But if if you look at something from different angles, all you know it it provides an element that you might have uh, might not have considered before, or even recognize it was there. And I just think it's really interesting to do that and and to recognize that you can find richness everywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that it's not it's like history is not is not just the uh, it doesn't just belong to historians if you will there's history in everything mm-hmm. and even if you even if your discipline isn't necessarily historical there's history within it yeah yeah history doesn't just belong to historians that's really well put um so nancy one final question what other projects are you involved in right now i mean what's what's coming next for you (laughs) um i i'm working on another book wow Um, that's great 
uh, it's still it's still in the developmental stages. But again, it's a it's an interdisciplinary approach to disability issues, and history is one of them as well. And uh, it it um, looks at history in different contexts on a worldwide basis. So I'm doing that. I'm also looking at. Um, the realities of being a uh, disabled academic in the academy and the the interesting situations one finds oneself in as a result of that. Oh, my. And, and I, I, as you can see, I'm rather interdisciplinary in the way I approach the work that I'm doing. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind if I actually ask a little bit more about that issue of the realities of being a disabled academic? I'm, I'm really interested in what your experiences have been. Well, um, it's never boring. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, there, I always feel kind of um, chronically unexpected. Mm. So, and one has to be uh, very um, creative in an environment where where one's presence is often not not expected, and the creativity that one has to use. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, in the way that one does research, and just in the way that one teaches one's classes. I mean, it, it's it's never boring, and it, it gives you a chance to be um, unceasingly creative in the way that you approach things. <laughs> I can't wait for this project, because <laughs> I, I can't wait to read your perspectives on things. And I'm sure you have some really good stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there, there are a few. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save them for the book. <laughs> yeah. Nancy, thank you so much for your time. It's so kind of you. I know you're incredibly busy, so so kind of you to take this time to talk to me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, thank you for asking me, and it's been a real pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs>